Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Nicole Montgomery, founder of Trusted Surgeons. Trusted surgeons believe that cosmetic surgery and elective procedures should enhance patients' quality of life. However, this is not always the case in a profit-driven industry, as you'll find out in this uh, interview. Trusted Surgeons is committed to providing a professional and ethically responsible service that complies with regulatory advertising standards and guidelines. They are advocates for patients, promoting informed decisions, and they are the leading body helping patients without options who require secondary surgery. Nicole has been a cosmetic and plastic surgery registered nurse for over eight years, and she's been recognized by the Oz. Um, Osmumpreneur community um, where she was awarded third prize in digital innovation. She has presented at industry events such as ASAPS, ASDC and Cosmeticon. She's also been featured on Four Corners, Seven News, Channel 10, Morning Show, Channel 9, ABC and the Project Channel 10. She's been featured in digital and print media and Nicole is all about patient advocacy. I really think this is such an important topic of conversation considering that cosmetic surgery and aesthetic procedures are just on the rise. So I hope that you enjoy my interview with Nicole as much as I enjoyed speaking with her today. I think that one of the biggest misconceptions is people assume it's all about aesthetics it's all about appearance and it's based on vanity, which I don't believe is the case. And I think the other end, which is another misconception that's quite big, is that people assume that some surgeries are easy, are simple. So, for instance, a lot of uh, women have had breast augmentations and they assume that it's quite an easy, low-risk procedure. So... Um, a lot of people may not understand the gravity of the potential complications of some procedures. Mm, interesting. And I'd definitely like to go into deeper detail for what you've just covered now um, later on in the podcast as well. But are you able to explain the differences between surgeries? So there's lots of different terms thrown around. We've got cosmetic surgery, plastic surgery, aesthetic surgery. You also mentioned that it's not always about vanity, so there may be more reconstructive type surgery, surgeries or something to help um, with the function of a bodily unit after, say, pregnancy or weight loss, etc. So are you able to just explain the different terms that are used? Yes, so a lot of um, surgeons, the majority of surgeons call themselves a cosmetic surgeon and that's whether they're um, cosmetically trained or a GP or a, plastic, a specialist plastic surgeon will also say plastic surgeon and cosmetic surgeon. And, and that's very common because cosmetic surgery is predominantly changing the way you look and uh, whether that's a rhinoplasty or um, a breast enhancement or a labiaplasty or liposuction, generally speaking, it's to change how you perceive yourself and how you feel about yourself. And um, that can also be functional which crosses over to the reconstructive surgery. So, for instance, a rhinoplasty may be a nose job that is also a rhinoplasty. So it's um, functionally you may have sinus, you may have um, breathing issues, and then you're also enhancing the way that the nose looks at the same time. So it is not simply a, um, a vanity procedure. It is also medical, or as you mentioned, a lot of women uh, postpartum will have... Um, Laxed muscles will have um, incontinence, may have lower back pain, um, and the various different um, 
skeletal muscles are not supported as they were before because of the loss of integrity of that muscle holding everything together, um, predominantly with abdominal separation. So by bringing those muscles back together and tightening them, they can then, of course, support your skeletal system better. So there are definitely medical reasons why um, having a tummy tuck can help somebody's quality of life, which is not simply looking good, you know, in a bikini. Um, Most mums, especially after having multiple births, generally don't care about how they look in their bikini or, um, you know, doing a model shoot or anything like that. But it still comes under that banner of cosmetic surgery. So it's still sometimes perceived as, you know, being being vanity driven. And um, enhancement surgery a lot of is another term that a lot of people use because you're enhancing what you have, which may be breast augmentation or um, facial. Um, and same with um, the labiaplasty, which is becoming more and more popular over the last, I guess, five years. I think um, a few years ago, or maybe longer, maybe 2016, it was talked about a lot at um, the ASATS conference because um, – more and more women, obviously, with access to the internet and access to porn and, and different things, um, more and more women are comparing themselves to other women and thinking, oh, hang on, my vagina doesn't look amazing. So mm. um, so are having surgery to change the appearance of their, their intimate areas. But, um, but then there are always, there's always been cases where, obviously, you have genital mutilation or um, cases where people have had a, a deformity and it is actually really uncomfortable and mm. therefore there's medical reasons why they would have surgery in that region. Yeah, right. Mm. And I'd also be interested to hear what your views are, and this is a bit off the cuff, but what your views are on social media and you were talking about women are more and more comparing themselves to models and to, um, you know, adult stars and, and social media do you think that this social media, well, number one, it is kind of making plastic surgery and these uh, surgical procedures look easy and accessible, mm. but do you think, and also I think it's less taboo than it used to be. Yes. But, but in terms of the actual functional changes and the functional surgeries that are occurring, do you think that those areas probably aren't getting as much highlight simply because they're not so aesthetic in nature so 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 people Mm. kind of have this connotation with plastic surgery being only about looks um where it's not something that you often hear about that it can actually be more of a functional uh procedure Mm. but but will make you look perhaps better (laughs) in the outcome as well yes oh my gosh absolutely and there's a lot of surgeons out there who aren't on social media or are very reluctant if if not even actually completely against it um for that reason, which is quite sad because their stories um, don't get out there and their patients are obviously um, a little bit more conservative. But um, but absolutely, you know, there, there are rare um, pages that do do really well with babies with cleft palates. Um, and in Australia, we don't see a lot of it compared to around the world because it is something that's through our Medicare system. But, oh, my gosh, hundreds, thousands of babies are born every day with... Um, you know, within all the hospital systems and hundreds of those children will be born with a birth deformity, which may Mm. be a cleft palate, maybe craniofacial, uh, which is very obvious and they will be shunned by society. It's not nasty. It's just a a fact because they they can't eat, they can't drink properly, um, they can't breastfeed and um, and they're basically completely missing the upper palate of their mouth and between their what would be their lip that's non-existent and their nose. Um, they're reconstructed from a very, very early age, and that is absolutely life-changing, not only for them but for, obviously, their parents and um, introducing their baby to the community and their, their family. Um, I actually worked in aged care um, nursing, and one of the patients, he was in his 90s, he had a cleft palate from a baby, and, and he still had that deformity. And, um, and he was really conscious about it. And he mm. frequently talked about it. He frequently drew attention to it, you know, just to, I guess, to alleviate the fact that he had this cleft palate. Um, you know, it, it significantly affected his entire life. He was embarrassed to go to school functions with his children because, you know, he didn't want to embarrass his children. Um, 
you know, and he was a, a normal guy, but um, but in his in his old age, it seriously affected him. And oh, there's a condition that you would know about. I can't remember what it's called. Rhino something or other, where the, the nose gets really big from mm, the skin condition from, rosa- from rosacea. Yes, and um, I've seen that before as well, where surgeons have um have fixed that where laser hasn't been able to or they may have had laser but there's still significant issues or skin cancer because generally I believe it is you guys that fix it by you guys I mean dermatology industry um but in that case there was a man who um, a surgeon was looking after and he was very very shy introverted went in had this procedure which was was surgically fixed and when he came back, he was like a different person. And again, in his 80s or 90s, like it was ridiculous. Mm. It was like two different people. Um, but all of those stories are, are very hidden because they're obviously, they're not glamorous. They're not beautiful. They're not selling sex. Um, and, and they're kind of forgotten about, I guess. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Yeah, well, of course. Um, so tell us more about the plastic surgery kind of landscape in Australia. Oh, it's very political and very divided. Um, so um, we obviously have specialist plastic surgeons who also call themselves cosmetic or aesthetic surgeons. Uh, we have cosmetic surgeons. So we have three major societies, which is the Australian Society of Plastic Surgery of Plastic Surgeons, um, the Austral-Asian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, and then um, the Australian College of Cosmetic Surgery, which is not surgeons but do often... Um, crossover and um, an ACCS, which is the Australian College of Cosmetic Surgeons. So it's very varied. There's lots of different Ackermans and lots of different um, professional organisations, some which are government accredited and some which aren't, and um, which makes it very difficult for consumers. And we also have a lot of consumers. So last year, um, a report stated that 20,000 Australians underwent breast augmentation um, I don't know the numbers because they aren't quantified, but there is an awful lot of women, well, not an awful lot, but a lot of women having um, explant surgery now, which is on the, the rise, and having fat transfer instead of breast augmentation. Um, there's thousands of women having uh, mastectomies for breast cancer every year. Um, we did 30,000 liposuction procedures. And on the Australian uh, Breast Device Registry, which is something we are always promoting, which is a not-for-profit organisation through Monash University, um, they have on their regist- um, registry 43,806 plus people, which wow. I assume is going up every day. Mm, absolutely. So I'm sure there's more than that now. But, um, yes, it's it's quite a, um, a vast landscape. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And how do the laws in Australia compare to other countries? You mentioned that there were uh, some regulated bodies and non-regulated mm. bodies. What about the actual legal or the laws in Australia? Well, it's very difficult. Um, so there have been quite a few instances where um, the different um, departments, being APRA, being the HCCC, have actually done a review and looked into the industry. I think the last there was one back in 2000 and 15 and then they did again after the woman they had a woman die and and sadly that's what it takes Mm. literally patients die before um anything changes because not much changed between um the review with the hcc predominantly which was specifically in new south wales last year compared to that uh in 2015 and um and that's really sad and that that review only was prompted by um having a, a patient you know lose her life but um it's different in every state in Australia because our states are run, um, the healthy is independent. So there's no, the federal laws are run by the um, Australian Medical Board, but it's very, very, very um, confusing and very difficult for patients. So there are a lot of surgeons at, not a lot, sorry, there are surgeons at the moment who, plastic and cosmetic, who do have uh, restrictions and conditions on their APRA registration. And trying to work out who they are and finding them is is not an easy task. If you look on social media, you would think that they were leading surgeons and amazing with, you know, all of the qualifications in the world. So that's really sad. In um, in America, they do have an accredited cosmetic surgery body 
uh, that has that is quite well developed. But in America, they have um, a much, much, much bigger population to us. Mm. So there's 17.5 million people um, in 2017 had surgery or a minimally invasive cosmetic procedure in the United States. Wow, that's massive. Like it's huge, yeah. <laughs> so they don't have the same political rivalry in, as they do in Australia. In America, you know, you can be triple board certified and um, cosmetic or plastic and they tend to work um, a little bit differently because it's, it's such a different landscape. So it's very hard to compare. But in Florida, they had, um, I think, three deaths in one year from uh Brazilian butt augmentation, Brazilian butt lift, and um, all of those deaths were mums with children, young children, which was really, really sad. They died from a pulmonary embolism, and um, and they actually did bring in a law in Florida to prevent anybody who does not have specialist training from operating. And in France, where they had the PIP scandal, which was a, an implant company that was selling implants with um, industrial-grade silicon, not medical, which made a lot of women very sick and others did die. Um, a few years ago when that happened, they um, they actually changed their laws as well so that only a specialist plastic surgeon can practice cosmetic surgery there. In mm. Australia, though, it is, it is very um, elusive. It's very difficult to understand. And basically anybody who has done a simple medical, who has done a medical degree can practice as a cosmetic surgeon doing huge surgeries, neck lifts, um, full body lifts, you know, really long surgeries. And as you would appreciate, the longer you are under anaesthetic, the more dangerous it becomes just from an mm. anaesthetic point of view. Well, and what did this review look at a few years ago? You mentioned the review. Oh, so there was a, there was a, a HCCC um, hearing and um, review last year, which looked um, into the commercial commercialization of cosmetic surgery. And um, that was because of the various franchises that had popped up and um, that were doing, obviously, invasive procedures, predominantly breast augmentation. And also because we had um, a patient in Surrey Hills who died from having filler to the breast area. So the filler actually had lidocaine in it and um, she was also anaesthetized. And so she was overdosed on lidocaine. Um, which was really sad and um, and very young lady, but she was not a registered doctor in Australia, which is a whole nother Pandora's box of people, you know, using imported products. If you can't read the labels and understand what the product has in it, then it's very, very dangerous to be injecting into somebody anywhere in their body. And, um, and of course, if you're not a registered practitioner, then you really shouldn't be in- injecting people. But trying to police that is very, very difficult. Um so they were looking into how they can police that, how they can make that landscape closer. They did do a, an advertising campaign. However, it was targeted at the Asian market and that was um, because that was where the highest incidence was. So there's a lot of, um, of selling and a lot of um, people going through WeChat and basically going to an injector or a surgeon and having procedures done in less than... Um, you know, the, what would be considered the standard. Mm, yeah, that's really scary, isn't mm. it? So this list that you're talking about at Monash Uni, so is this a like is when someone undergoes surgery for aesthetic Specifically or plastic? Specifically augmentation. I see. Okay, so there isn't necessarily a list of all the people that have had plastic or it doesn't have to go into a register um, no. when someone undergoes surgery. So I, I can imagine that there would be all these other procedures mm. that are being done that aren't necessarily considered plastic surgery because they might mm. be using something like filler, yes. but they can be equally as dangerous and invasive. Oh, absolutely. And um, Professor Anandiva has been trying to bring something in and working with the um, injectable companies because he believes that filler is the same as an implant. It's still a foreign body and therefore there is still the risk of, um, of bacteria on that foreign body and, and a biofilm developing. Um, but it is very, very, very difficult to get that over the line in, in regards to funding from industry, from the injectable, um, injectable suppliers, the pharmaceutical companies, and then also um, government support. So the Australian Breast Device Registry came about, um, Dr. Kuta was one of the, the leading specialist plastic surgeons in getting that over the line. 
because we did have so many women who were dying and who were extremely ill from having a PIP breast implant. Mm. Um, so the Australian government, I think, invested a huge amount. I don't know how many millions. I was going to throw a number out there, but I don't really know. Um, but they invested a huge amount of money in setting that up as a not-for-profit, as an independent um, registry so that women or doctors can um, register the implants they have. And if there is a potential issue with those implants, if there's a risk, if there is a recall, everybody will be notified and it will be dealt with and addressed with in a prompt manner. At the moment, there's still, even though the PIP implant scandal was about seven years ago, there's still women coming out of the woodwork um, who didn't even know they'd been recalled. Wow, that's Mm. scary, isn't it? And that's just with breast augmentation. Yes, yes, and they're walking around with um, medical-grade silicon in their lymph nodes, completely clogging yeah. up their entire lymph system. Yeah, well, mm. um, and just considering that there's many other surgeries now that use some form of implant mm-hmm. uh, and these aren't probably considered or have a registry board that's similar to the um, no. breast board that you are talking about. No, yes, that yeah. is correct, yeah. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about... Trusted surgeons. So you found a trusted surgeon some time ago, um, and I'd like to hear a bit more about your background and kind of the beginnings of this. Like, do you remember the exact moment when you thought I have to do something about patient advocacy for plastic surgery patients in Australia? Yes, I was working at the time as a post-operative nurse, and um, and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do or how I was going to go about it. But um, but I do remember. Um, we had a mother and a daughter who had both flown to Sydney to have the surgery and um, they had terrible result, both of them. Um, the mother was beside herself because obviously she supported the daughter having this surgery and um, both financially and emotionally. And, um, and they were really excited from the beginning. I remember seeing them at their first week post-op because they, because they flew over, they stayed in Sydney for a week and then went back home. Um, so they tried to do everything by the book. You know, they were really cautious to follow all of their post-operative, um, you know, advice and and do everything how the, the surgeon had said. I actually knew when I saw them at their one week, I thought, oh, I, I have a terrible feeling that this is not going to work out. There's, these implants have definitely been put in too low. So their nipples were basically pointing to the sky mm. and the implant was exceptionally low, far below the IMF, which is your natural intramemory fold. And um, anyway, of course, the worst case scenario did happen and they were extremely unhappy. They had a terrible result. The implants um, basically fell into their armpits because that, that is the, the path of least resistance and it was over-dissected, the pocket. And um, the implants were too big for the daughter's body in the, in the first instance. And she was really attractive, really attractive um, young lady who had very small to nothing breast, you know, very slender. And then after she had these implants, it just completely destroyed her, her body, her confidence. And they flew back from Perth to see the surgeon to try and, and do something because it was, you know, about three or six months. So some time had passed for things to settle, which is generally what patients are told, well, were told at a, an early stage, you know, give it time, don't expect results overnight, like swelling and everything go down. And um, and the surgeon came in and said to them, oh, no, no, this is fine. You just need to wear a supportive underwire bra, lift them up, maybe wear some tape of a night. And then was looking at me like, just some tape. We can put some tape on them to tape them up. And, um, oh, dear. Yes, and, then, and then scar tissue will form. And when the scar tissue forms, the implants will be great and they'll be exactly where you want them to be. And I'm thinking... When it forms a... Com, a com, um, yeah. Was it capsula? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? And it could take years and years to get scarring forming. And even if it did, it's not going to form in exactly the place that you want it to. Like, as you mentioned, you know, you would you, generally you would have scarring around the entire implant, not necessarily the lower pole to support it like an underwire. Mm. Um, so I knew that what he was saying was just the most, it was so ridiculous and it was so heartbreaking and frustrating 
with these people, you know, believing every word that came out of his mouth and thinking this was amazing. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, how can I tell them to go and see a specialist plastic surgeon? So, of course, when he left, I said to them, look, I can't obviously cross my professional boundaries and diagnose them and say, no, this is what's wrong and this is what's going to happen and you're, you're screwed. Um, so I, I said, look, you know, I could obviously both very upset and they were, they were both crying and it was, you know, it was such, they were so unhappy with everything that had unfolded and the amount of money they'd spent. And I said, look, you know, when you get back to Perth, it might be an idea to when you've got time and, um, and the resources to, to go and, and get a second opinion. There's some really great specialist plastic surgeons and I even Googled some for them and, um, and I, I said to them that there was a couple of websites. There was, at the time, um, Plastic Surgery Forum and Real Self. And I said, you know, there's a couple of websites that you could use. And I asked them, I said, hey, what, what made you decide to come here? And then after that day, I started asking more and more people how they found out about the clinic. And, um, and more and more people were saying that it was through the social media um, and when you looked at the social media of this clinic, it was amazing. It was really good. It had patient after patient who was happy, had all the, you know, details of this patient and um, surgeon after surgeon who had done, you know, endless such and such has done so many thousands of cases. And they're all so happy and wonderful. So it did look really reputable, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and um, and then the clinic also worked in partnership with um, Plastic Surgery Forum, which was why we, we were all told to recommend them. We were all told to join this forum. Um, and they sent quite a few different influences through the clinic, which was at a, when influences weren't a thing, if that mm. makes sense. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then they were used, of course, um, to catapult off. And um, and that's why I was thinking, oh, my gosh, this is this is so terrible. Whenever anything bad was written about any of our surgeons, because we worked with the, um, the online directory, they were removed. Wow, that sounds illegal. <laughs> but we, we actually, we, no, it's not. We actually, no, it's not. We Crazy. actually got emails. We, we would all get emails, FYI, this has been put on this forum, um, you know, if anybody mentions it, whatnot, and, and it would be removed. And, um, and I actually did a COAG submission last year and put um you know some a lot of this information and evidence of this because I was able to screenshot you know the um what was on there at the time I did I screenshot the the negative review that was written and then the next day that it was gone Mm. so um so I actually put this in my COAG submission I don't know what will happen with the COAG but um but I believe sometime at the end of this year there is going to be a decision which will be on a federal level regarding the aesthetic space um but everything with government is quite slow so whether or not that actually prevails i don't know mm. Mm. so you saw this before your very eyes yes and, <laughs> I, and i thought oh my gosh i'm going to do um i'm going to do a directory that um that makes it really 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 simple for patients um and that is not profit driven and that um that doesn't partner with with specific clinics and franchises and organisations. Um, and that's what I mean by profit-driven. You know, if you're going to um, only promote one person or one clinic and, and, you know, you've got to be really careful, I guess, who you align with um, when you grow a following. Does that make mm. sense? Of course, for bias as well. Mm. Yeah. 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 So um, so that's, that's really difficult. And we have had that um, issue a couple of times. We had a quite a large implant company approach us last year wanting to us to promote exclusively their implants and um, and it was so tempting to go down that road um, but at the same time had we done that I'm not sure how we could possibly help patients who want to have explants and who are strongly against the implant companies do you know what I mean yeah, mm-hmm. yeah well so, that's right well it's it's about that. providing information about mm. what is out there but not being biased towards any which way because yes. it's going to be different for everyone everyone needs something different and everyone wants different outcomes mm. so i can imagine that it can be difficult to kind of manage that platform so that you are addressing the multiple facets of concerns that come with aesthetic and plastic surgery yes that definitely has evolved over the years 
and um and it is challenging sometimes because you know we like people we might you know get along with somebody and and they've got a great device but um but yes if we're going to be fair to our patients and um and our audience we have to show them all the options not only somebody who's nice to us or patient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I just, when you were talking before about this case, so they had had surgery in Sydney and they were from Perth. Yes. Um, and before you mentioned how each Australian state is governed differently. Mm-hmm. So how does this come into play in regards to if someone isn't happy with surgery, uh, what kind of are the legal ramifications if they're going interstate? Oh, it's it's very difficult. It's much easier if you are within Australia because you'll fall you fall under Australian law. So APRA is national, and the Australian Medical Board is national. But um, but each state does have their own unique individual systems and processes and laws to create a, a safer system for their patients. Um, and, um, so what was the question again? Well, I I was just thinking, you know, like the results are subjective. So if someone, if someone goes, if someone, well, if someone goes and has surgery in a different state, Mm. like, and some, and that person is not happy with that surgery and then they find out that that, what what are the ramifications? They'll still go through. So they, um, so each state, so Queensland, for instance, you have a health ombudsman. In New South Wales, you have the HCCC. In Victoria, I think it's done by um, Human Services. Um, So um, Perth does have a a health ombudsman as well. Most states have a health ombudsman, to be honest, but um, but we have the Healthcare Complaints Department in New South Wales. Um, And Victoria has a department as well for healthcare complaints. But the problem with that is it is quite an arduous process um, the government body will look into it, but they won't give you any compensation. So the end result is that the complaint goes to APRA, whatever state you're in, that complaint goes to APRA, and then APRA and the medical board will decide whether or not there's any action to be taken. Um, in a lot of instances we've seen, no action has been taken, but then with certain surgeons, there has been a cluster of issues. And um, so we did see um, Dr. Les Blastock last year lose his registration entirely. He was suspended and now he has completely removed himself. Um, and he was also fined by New South Wales Health. Whether or not he actually pays that is another question. And that was as that was quoted from the, um, the health prosecutor. But for actual compensation for the, pain, for the patient so that they can have reconstructive surgery, it's a very difficult, long, arduous process through a private lawyer. Mm. Um, so prevention is far better than oh gosh, revision. Yes. yes. Yep. And in the end, the lawyers get paid very well for the process, especially with the, you know, no, no fee up front. And, um, and the poor patient ends up two, three, four plus years of um, just a nightmare and, you know, for instance, just throwing a number out there, if this case settles at 100,000, medical negligence is 50,000 generally minimum, um, the, the lawyer might get 80,000 mm. for that three years' work. Doesn't leave a lot over for reconstructive, no. you know, also no. addressing the psychosocial impacts. Mm. Yeah. I've never actually spoken to a patient who has received enough money from a settlement to actually have the reconstructive surgery that they want. Mm. Mm. So I'd really love to get into some of the questions and things that people need to look out for. But before we go on to that, I'd really love to hear about a favourite case study or career moment, like a time when trusted surgeons, either beginning or more recent times, you thought this is really what I'm here to do and it reminded you of why you um, are fighting so hard to uh, get some more laws and and. I guess moral morals in the Australian plastic surgery space. Oh, we have so many. We have lots of really cool um, feedback, and um, occasionally we do get people who, um, like you said, it's perception, who um, are not nece- not happy, not necessarily happy because we haven't been able to give them any direction or help because they have seen some experts in the field who have said that you're not going to get the result that you you desire. 
Um, and that happens a lot with non-surgical and surgical, if that makes sense. Like people want to have a non-surgical solution, but unfortunately that's not going to give them the result that they want. And, um, and that's very frustrating. Or we have patients who simply want free surgery and we, we can't do that. That's mm. you know, not within our power. But we have a lot of patients who we do help. Who free surgery. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes. Are you unhappy? Free surgery here. <laughs> oh, no. and, and, so, and then we get like a bad review or a bad, you know, email. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I understand that you're upset or that you are suffering breast implant illness or whatever it is. But we simply don't have the means to do that. Um, but we, we did have one recently who um, who I've actually featured a lot on our Instagram page. Her name's Rachel. She's so cool. And uh, But, oh, she's had such an awful, awful experience. Her story is just so heartbreaking. And um, she, after speaking to us and feeling quite helpless, we, um, we helped her write a whole bunch of letters to different uh, ministers and um, she started writing letters to radio people, to surgeons. She went through our website and contacted every single surgeon on the website and um, 25 surgeons came back to her, which is not amazing, but, hey, it's still better than nothing. And then she ended up seeing one of those surgeons who has managed to get her on the public list for explant surgery. She will have to pay for a lift um, and reconstructive surgery down the track. But it's the it's a first step. You know, it's amazing that she's getting the implants out because they're only causing more damage the longer they're in. And um, her going off to that consult was so exciting. And her husband messaged us and said you you guys are and he swore he used the f word but he said you guys are effing amazing because she went from being completely like just no hope whatsoever i'm stuck with these implants and hating myself and looking ugly and crying all the time to you know what now i i have a path and i have some form of of hope and somebody is um is going to help me most of the actually all of the surgeons that replied were exceptionally nice to her um and and sorry that that she'd been through what she'd been through and most of the government people that she messaged were um were saying yes this this is definitely a gap and you you have unfortunately fallen victim to you know really poor ethics in in surrounding advertising and marketing and when she first came to us she felt like an idiot Mm. how could I have been so stupid why did I you know fall for this why did I go ahead with the you know and that's really um and she was really shy she didn't want anyone to she didn't want to speak out she didn't want anybody to judge her and now she's emailing radio people and you know doing videos for Instagram yeah, and I've been following Rachel's story along your feeds, but for those of you that aren't familiar with uh, Rachel's story, are you able to just provide a really um, kind of overview? What is Rachel's story? Did she have surgery in Australia? What, yes. what was the surgery? So, yeah, no, that's easy. Um, so she, um, she researched for over a year. So when people say, and this is why she felt so stupid, when people say to you, do your research, um, she was actually someone who did believe she'd done her research. She wanted a breast augmentation her entire life after having two children who she didn't breastfeed. She, so she had a great um, palate, I guess, to start with. Um, she decided that now was her time. Her children had grown up and that was why she spent so long researching. She went to multiple appointments. Funnily enough, she actually did go to an appointment of a qualified surgeon. Um, when she went to the appointment for the surgeon she eventually chose, she believed he was. Everything about him, his charisma, his attitude, his confidence matched that of the um, specialist plastic surgeons she saw. So she had no idea that he wasn't qualified she saw numerous reviews. She researched him online. Everything was amazing. And um, she decided to go ahead with surgery. Even then, she had a cooling off period of about three months. Like there was, it wasn't like she booked one day, went the next day. And um, when she did go in for the surgery, she thought that, um, you know, she thought that it was great that he was doing surgery in his own day hospital, which all looked very, very clean and clinical. Um she only started to feel nervous when he actually put a blindfold on her and thought, hang on, this can't be normal, this can't be right, something's not right here. But she was reassured by the nurse that was there and, um, and away he went. He did his own an- anaesthetic. 
So all of his patients, this particular doctor who is a GP with no um, affiliation or association with any professional body, he, um, he did his own anaesthetic whilst doing the breast augmentation. So she could actually feel a lot of it. She started crying and screaming because of the pain. She could feel his fingers in her pocket. He sat her up and said, what do you think of these results? Um, she was so upset. And this, is, this story resonates with hundreds of his patients because he did that with everybody, removed accountability to the patient whilst they're under anaesthetic in the middle of a surgical procedure. Anyway, so the surgery ends. She ended up having um, a hematoma, had to go to the local public hospital, was sent home on antibiotics and medication. Then she had another hematoma a week later. She literally did nothing, was in pain completely, um, oh, what's the word, um, in not moving. So when I, mm. yeah. And um, so she ended up with bilateral hematomas, which are extremely painful and dependent on multiple pain relief when she contacted his clinic to say i'd love to come in for a post-op care you know i've got all these complications going on um they said the health department has closed us wow she said, what are you talking about what, what my doctor so she actually has an email that she's provided to us and to the various complaint um, bodies that that says uh you know doctor such and such is no longer practicing and is suffering mental health issues due to the bad publicity she still didn't know what was going on and it wasn't until she started googling that she realized oh hang on here he is on news corp and here there and everywhere for um the health department closing his premises and suspending his APRA registration oh dear mm, mm. and then when she went to see a specialist plastic surgeon after this because she went oh my god you know what do i do and the emergency department referred her to one of their plastic surgeons he said how could you be so stupid he's oh. not even a real surgeon yeah. So that immediately then sent her into recluse. And when she recently had the consult, which went obviously amazingly and she's booked in to have an explant, she was shaking and mm. she couldn't stop shaking. And the surgeon said to her, I'm not going to hurt you. It's okay. Mm. And um, because she just felt so anxious and uneasy and just embarrassed, oh, and who do you trust? I mean, mm. you've you've got someone that is a medical professional, mm. you know, has done years of university, but mm. not in, not in the areas that they really needed to have. Yeah. Uh, telling her that they're confident, telling her that it's going to mm. be okay, uh, reassuring her, and taking her money and mm. going into a hospital. Uh, these are all things that you know for the normal person would think they're legit. How mm. how else would they be where they are? How else yeah. would they have all these yeah. raving reviews mm. if they weren't actually qualified to do this? Mm. A solicitor did take on her case, which is taking a, a years, um, but the solicitor said, oh, you know, it's because it's because your results aren't bad enough. Wow. It, she's in incredible pain constantly mm. from these implants pressing on nerves and, and causing so much damage internally. Mm. Mm. So if someone is seeking surgery, whether it be implant, whether it be aesthetic, uh, you know, there's so many types of different surgeries, what are some of the questions that they should be asking their surgeon? Oh, I always tell people to, to look to see if they are a member of an accredited body because that is, that is very helpful. Having a professional alliance with a, a professional accredited body is so important. If the, um, if the surgeon does run into complications, which is unforeseen complications, then at least they have a professional body to rely on. They have colleagues um, who all specialise in different areas within the same field that can help them. And unfortunately, when um, these unforeseen circumstances do happen, when you're with a surgeon who does not have a professional organisation, is not a member of, um, of any professional body, they're on their own. So, mm. you know, they don't have that backup and support, professional support that the other surgeons will. Um, I always get um, tell patients to ask what their revision policy is. It can be a shock sometimes to patients. Even if a surgeon does a revision surgery at no cost, most surgeons um, won't waive the hospital fee. They can't. That feeds to the hospital and, of course, the anaesthetic fee. So even though the patient might feel that this isn't my fault, there is still 
um, hospital and anaesthetic fees that are above and beyond that surgeon's fee. Mm. Um, and, and being able to recognise that early means that you are prepared for the worst as opposed to thinking that won't happen to me. And we have had a patient who had an anaesthetic issue, so she aspirated at the end of her theatre. Uh, because it was a private hospital, she was in ICU for a week and then um, another couple of weeks in the hospital and ended up with a bill of 18000 Wow. Yes, and that was that was reduced apparently. Wow. Uh, and that wasn't her total fees. It wasn't including tests and whatnot. So that was a huge shock when she went in for, you know, an $8,000 procedure. And um, and that's that's unavoidable. People aspirate in theatre, you know. <laughs> so this isn't necessarily covered by insurance, health insurance. If you have health insurance, there will you, you will it will be significantly different. But a lot of people who don't have health insurance, especially young people who are having breast augmentations, just think that it's you know in you go, out you go. Well, you wouldn't consider it, would you? You think. No. Yeah. And you can't always ask to be transferred to a public hospital when you're completely incoherent and, you know, your loved ones, all they care about is is you getting well and living because that's life or death. You know, we had three people die from a rhinoplasty last year. People going in for a standard, you know, rhinoplasty, tonsillectomy, you you know, it's not something that's common, but it can happen. So understanding and knowing the risks, our surgeons should be open and transparent and not have any issues talking about complications and, and how they manage them. It's often a difficult conversation, but it's um, it's a very important one. And then I always tell people to look at before and afters. Don't necessarily rely on social media because a lot of people will post all of their great results on social media. They won't post the not so great. So what you're seeing isn't necessarily a depiction of um, that surgeon. And when you um, go into any clinic, most surgeons, all surgeons will, will have a portfolio of work. And a lot of them will um, not show photos on social media because their patients are quite conservative. But when you go into their clinic, their patients have actually consented for their photos to be used in clinic or de-identified and used in clinic. And um, and a lot of patients seem to think, oh, well, he's got no before and afters online. He mustn't be very good or he hasn't done a lot of patients. And that is far from the truth. Most of the older generation of surgeons ha- don't even know what Instagram is, let alone putting all of their life's work up there. You know, Dr. O'Keefe is a perfect example. He's, um, oh, my gosh, an absolute pioneer, one of our leading rhinoplasty surgeons in Australia, teaches plastic and ENT surgeons. Uh, invented a thing for the nose to create a septum, is um, extremely well-known professionally, but he doesn't have an Instagram presence. He has hundreds of before and afters if you go into his clinic and they're literally printed like from a film roll. But um, do you know what I mean? So social media is not always a great depiction of a, a great physician or surgeon. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, number one would be making sure they're part of a government body or like a a governed body. What are they? Because earlier in the conversation you mentioned that some are and some aren't. Yeah, so the only accredited bodies are ASPS, the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, and ASAPS, which is the Austro-Asian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. Okay, so if they're not part of one or both of those. Yes, then don't book a consultation. Like, don't do, yeah, be careful. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what about uh, some red flags during a consultation? So someone feels like they've done their due diligence and they're at the consultation um, and what would some red flags be? Look, you know what? This is a little bit wish-washy, but most people... um, will have a gut feeling. You know, if you you need to feel comfortable and you need to trust your gut. Um, if, you, if you don't feel comfortable, then you're not going to be able to talk openly. So if a surgeon, um, you know, you, if you don't feel the surgeon's approachable, then that is always a red flag. They have to be approachable. You have to be able to openly discuss your concerns, your goals, um, your issues because post if you can't before surgery and post operatively it will be a nightmare for you. Mm. So having a, a good rapport and 
um, somebody who's approachable that you can be honest with is um, is imperative. Um, not being able to see any before and afters is definitely a red flag for me. I think you should have something or some or an, a reason that you don't. Um, all specialist plastic surgeons will have been through training, so they may not necessarily, if they've just come out of their time, they may not necessarily have built up a portfolio, but they will be able to tell you, I worked in uh, breast reconstruction as a specialty for the last however many years. Mm-hmm. And they do build those portfolios very, very, very quickly because it is part of their professional development and practice as well so that they can review their work. So if somebody doesn't have any before and afters, I generally think there's something not right or is, is wrong in that um, scenario. And um, Blindfolds. Another one, yeah. <laughs> blindfolds. If, any, if anyone's putting a blindfold on you before surgery, I'd say that's yeah. a pretty big red flag. Oh, my gosh, but it's too late then, isn't it? And that's why the consult is so important, you know, taking a list of questions and... um, It is, it is, but I also want to highlight just consent, you know, like consent Mm. can be verbal, written um, or implied. Mm. And, yes, you would have gone through all of this consent via forms and documents and consultation, et cetera, but any time that any patient is undergoing any type of procedure, they can uh, revise that consent at any time that they wish. So yes. if yes. they're if they're sitting there about to go into surgery and, I mean, I'm sure that there would be nerves and that mm. there can be um, some aversion to actually having surgery at that, you know, the last hour. Yeah. Uh, however, at any time if someone was feeling uncomfortable, they do have a right to cease um going forward correct absolutely absolutely and i think that that um the third red flag would be that they have a good team because when you're talking to a surgeon and there's only a surgeon and a receptionist that would also be another red flag for me your your post-operative care and um understanding the entire consent form and all of the risks associated uh, is often done with a um, with a nurse they mm-hmm. will have a registered nurse and they'll have a post-operative nurse they'll have a team around them that will be your support network that's the same with a dermatologist that has a dermal clinician um, there's there's a team of people working together collaboratively to ensure that you have a, a safe and comfortable journey and um, when a, a surgeon doesn't have a nurse working with them I generally think oh my gosh what's going on there and that is very common with the unscrupulous providers Mm, and they have a high staff turnover because they're not amazing. Yeah. Mm. And, Nicole, how do you think that the surgery kind of landscape will change in the future in Australia? Oh, look, you know what? I I have two minds about this. I often think more people are going to die and something will change, which is awful and so morbid to think that that has to happen. Um. But then I also think that we could go down the other path where it does become more collaborative and um, and increasing patient standards on a more national basis and creating some form of formal process for cosmetic surgery. Cosmetic surgery is, um, is so grey at the moment because obviously a specialist plastic surgeon trains through the Royal College of Surgeons when they come out of that as a specialist plastic surgeon, they go off and practice, can practice cosmetic surgery. So the argument is that you don't do breast augmentations, you don't do um, tummy tucks, I guess, or, or minor nose jobs in, um, in the public system. But the uh, other side of that argument is you do cleft palates, you do do major body lifts, you do reconstruction. So therefore you are qualified. But then there's doctors who might study cosmetic surgery independently, not been through a specialist program and have been overseas and and whatnot. Uh, So it's all very confusing. So I would like to say that everybody will work together and there will become a formal accreditation process specifically for cosmetic surgery or more people will die and it will only be specialist plastic surgeons who practice Mm. cosmetic surgery. Mm. so do you think that it kind of comes from the top down or the bottom up like in terms of for a long time it's come from the top down and um the only way we're going to get change and i firmly believe this is why i do trust surgeons is if patients drive that change yeah absolutely 
Yeah. So people being more informed about their health and the decisions and the risks yes. and then having platforms such as trusted surgeons for them to be able to find qualified um, practitioners. Yes. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and one last question. Uh, kind of question that I'd like to know about more about marketing <laughs> we've mentioned social media a few times here mm. you actually did a post some time ago that uh, you were offered free liposuction and uh, I know of a woman that actually found her plastic surgeon from snapchat so uh, it's just <laughs> <laughs> crazy crazy it to, is it is so Okay, yeah. so I guess trust is, yeah, what do people, what do people do? <laughs> well, look, it's really hard. I actually had somebody only last week who was, um, who was giving us a hard time. This is a, a, a professional person, not a, a patient, and said, you only promote the procedures that you have done or you like. And I said, well, no, that's actually not true. You know, last year, earlier this year, sorry, I had liposuction to my neck and, and thread lifting. And, of course, I, I shared the journey. But I did that. I didn't get that for free. I'll make that very clear. Um, I did pay, but um, but I only did that to to as as a vulnerability to um to to share my journey so that other people could learn from it. I had tried cool sculpting. I had tried Belkira. I had tried different things. My son needs an autoplasty next year. There is no way in God's green earth that I, my son's only six that I would be putting any of my children through surgery to promote a surgeon. Mm. or a procedure that is so ridiculous and absurd um, and it blows my mind because when I did that post I actually did get people who messaged me and said can I volunteer I'll be there in 20 minutes <laughs> I want free and um and I thought you know even though it's not you're not being paid as an influencer like that person's not coming to me and saying hey I'll pay you five thousand dollars to promote me inadvertently they are offering $5,000 worth of lipo at no cost and I would assume expecting me to post about my journey. That's right. And um, post in good light. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, having the liposuction and thread lifting wasn't all good. I shared mm. a post, post with all my bruising. I said I felt like a battered, beaten wife and, and judged at the grocery shop because I had a black eye and all this bruising around my neck like as if I'd been strangled. Mm. You know, and I'm walking around the place with this <laughs> funny, awful garment. You know, I did share the bad, but I had the freedom to share that bad. Mm. And um, and that was purely because, yes, I went in as a paying client talking about my journey. And they're, they're the true stories that I like seeing in other clinics. And I do. I, I saw a YouTuber um, a couple of years ago, went through a breast augmentation journey um, with a specialist plastic surgeon, posted about it everywhere. But the amount of time she had to reassure people and remind people that, hey, I actually paid for this procedure is quite sad because people always assume the worst. And I did that post to, to highlight that, you know, there are patients out there who don't pay mm. and who are incentivised to, to get it for free. So, again, don't believe everything you see. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, it, it's, it's really sad and... Um, I do it myself. I believe everything I see. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that's human nature. We have this inner yeah. trust. So that, easy to say. Yeah. Preach, but if it looks good, the marketing practice. looks good, the images are professional, mm. we assume that it's all above board. Yeah, yeah, and I do it all the time. So I completely empathize with with others. And where can people find more about plastic surgery and trusted surgeons? Oh, on our on our um, Instagram, Facebook, or website. Yep, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being in the show today, Nicole. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm what an eye-opening interview! Nicole shared with us some patient stories and also gave some really good tips on what to look for or what not to look for if you are looking to undergo some kind of aesthetic or cosmetic or reconstructive procedure. And the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were, well, there's kind of four. Um, people assume that plastic surgery is all about appearance and vanity and it 
just simply isn't as Nicole discussed. And number two, people assume that some surgeries are easy and simple, but people really don't understand the gravity and risks of certain procedures. And this comes to point three, where social media makes plastic surgery and aesthetic procedures look easy. They make it look like it's a day procedure. And though some of them are, there are some real risks involved in every type of procedure, especially when there's anesthesia and things um, being given. And number four, uh, clarity about what procedures. So we're specifically talking about plastic surgery, aesthetic surgery, uh, these types of interventions where you need to be under general anesthetic and there's significant sutures or sometimes not significant sutures. Just to clarify, there are many cosmetic doctors who perform non-surgical procedures with great results and safety. So I think it's important and I understand how confusing it can be. Who do I choose for what? So if you do have further questions about uh, who to choose for what procedure, then we have listed some resources in the show notes, uh, but you can also contact trusted uh, trusted uh, surgeons and have a look at the surgeons on their website who are all registered with governed bodies, or you can contact them if you have a specific inquiry. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that podcast episode with Nicole Montgomery. I think it certainly highlighted uh, some important points that all of us need to consider if any of us are thinking about going under the knife, for lack of a bit of a term, or we have friends or family that is looking at having some kind of aesthetic procedure as well. So thank you so much for sharing your earbuds with me on this episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. If you know someone experiencing a skin conditional concern and you're enjoying these episodes, then be sure to share the podcast with them. It may help them on their skin health journey more than you realize.